Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Mimi Pond is a Los Angeles resident a cartoonist, illustrator, and writer. She's created comics for the Los Angeles Times, Seventeen Magazine, National Lampoon, and many, many other publications, including this comic that we have on our wall here that she uh, that she drew when, when our other store opened up in 2008. Um, she's written for television and written and illustrated five humor books. Here she is to discuss her new sort of memoir, Over Easy. Takes from Black Brass Bells at a Happy Hour. (laughs) 
just to give you an idea of what it was like. Corporate management could take a few lessons from Joan Bailey's business model. For example, this is a typical staff meeting. <laughs> you see, by the end of the meeting, conflict resolution. And management back then just knew sometimes a waitress just needs her breakfast wine. <laughs> Political correctness was not the watchword of the day. Even so, team members had a way of encouraging each other. For example, brilliant line cook Andy Clementi's favorite heralding cry was, You lying whore! <laughs> Who could forget the customers back then? There was Rye Toast Peg, nicknamed after her standing order. She told us she was a retired chorus girl and manicurist. We'll never know. Then there was this joker on the left who, seeing me on my first day of work, said, Who's that new girl? She's not much to look at, but she's got personality plus. <laughs> personality plus? That became his nickname. <laughs> and then there's Peter Brady, whose t-shirt sums up the entire decade. And uh, I just wonder, like, how many people here worked in restaurants in the 70s? Okay. Uh, are there people here who worked at restaurants in the 80s? Yeah. 90s? Okay. The aughts? 60s. Okay. Did, did, anyone, did anyone ever date their coworkers? Yeah? Define date. Who had sex in the restaurant? You just stepped on my next line, Yeah, who had sex in the walk-in? How many of you wish you had sex in the restaurant with your coworkers but didn't? <laughs> well, anyway, um, the uh, the upshot of all this is that I saved my money working in this restaurant, and I uh, started submitting cartoons to places like the National Lampoon, which actually bought them. And um, the cartoon editor of the National Lampoon back then was Sherry Flanagan, who did a comic strip called Trots and Bonnie. She became an important mentor of mine. She invited me to join her and the other Lampoon cartoonist at Comic-Con in 1980. And this picture has just surfaced. <laughs> of, that's Mary Kay Brown, the brilliant cartoonist, Sam Gross, who is still working for the New Yorker today, Mary Wilshire, and a woman named Holly Tuttle there, hidden by her hat on the end. And that's, that's young waitress Beanie there. Anyway, that's that. And then we go to trying to figure out the next thing, which is, where is it? Where did it go? I don't know. Where did it go? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Hang on, just I think I just do it like this. No? <laughs> Maybe 
Bless you. All right, here we go. Thank you. I am used to eating breakfast in restaurants. I find a certain comfort in the usual coffee shop fare. Eggs swimming in grease, styrofoam toast, frozen hash browns. But when I go back to the Imperial Cafe to get my free meal, I find food heaven. Here, they serve fluffy pastel yellow omelets stuffed with wonderful fillings like crab or chicken or anything you might ask for. There's that rich dark roast coffee with real cream. Orange juice the waitress will squeeze right before your eyes. The best home fries you've ever tasted. All this and starched white napkins too. I've never seen quality like this before. It's like my life. I was used to margarine and now here is butter. <laughs> There's a feeling sitting at the counter that if you're here, you know something. Everything's vibrating at a higher frequency in a solid symphonic groove of rattling, clinking, steaming, frying, and non-stop chatter. The wonderful mingling perfume of bacon and high-octane coffee. Maybe it's the radio, K-San blaring Elvis Costello over everything. Elvis Costello, who makes the whole punk new wave thing make sense to me because Elvis is as disgusted as I am with this decade. <laughs> it's a busy weekend morning, and it's very crowded. The crowd that piles up waiting for tables is a cavalcade of hipsters. And if you know anything about hipsters, you know their signifiers tell you everything. The pro <coughs> professional crowd is here with their blow-dried hair, patchwork leather jackets, coordinating patchwork denim jeans, silk shirts, gold disco chains, smoked aviator frames, cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> The punks, who are, whom I have started noticing are everywhere, start wear skinny black stovepipe jeans and black leather jackets, or try to look like 1960s English mods. Speed. <laughs> the diehard hippies, you just can't get rid of them, are in attendance every furry, poncho-wearing, Birkenstock, shod one of them. Pot. Usually hippies and punks are in enemy camps, but here, everyone gets along. Great. Drugs unite them. Well. Drugs and the war on disco. <laughs> Maybe it's the waitresses in their thrift store dresses, which give them the look of gorgeous, cheery dust bowl refugees or demented gangsters' moles cracking lies to the customers. Maybe it's just that everyone here is so good looking. Maybe it's that when you sit at the counter at one end, you can flirt with someone at the other end just by looking in the mirror. Gazing into that reflected tableau, I want to jump in. Sitting at the counter, after about seven cups of coffee, I have a crystalline moment of pure consciousness. It comes to me. I could work here. It's what I'm meant to do. It's real life. <laughs> I buddied up to Tina, one of the waitresses. She went to CCAC too, a ceramics major. She even graduated, not like me, officially out on my ass. Are they hiring any waitresses? You have to start as a dishwasher before you wait tables. It's the rule, but I don't know. Laszlo? Hey doll, what's up? Suddenly dishwashing seems like the perfect occupation for me. It's real life. Orwell. You got any job openings right now? I mean, I, I've never worked in a restaurant before, but tell me a joke. What? Tell me a joke or a dream. If I like it, I hire you. That's the way it works. That's our policy. <laughs> He's not kidding. Um, my heart's racing. Joke or dream? They're waiting. Why did God give women legs? Why? So they wouldn't leave snail trails. Uh, <laughs> Girl, you're rank. I like it. It's true. I have an arsenal of vulgar jokes. This from hanging around my disgusting brother and his disgusting friends in high school. Hey, Frank. This is Frank Mancino. He's the owner. Match here is going to be our new dishwasher. You start tomorrow, 8 a.m. sharp. 
Want to hear a joke? Why did God give get our W two form to fill out? <laughs> Wait. I've never washed dishes before, but I'm very responsible. I'm a hard worker. You won't be sorry. Frank turns and looks at me like I'm nuts. <laughs> looks at Laszlo, shakes his head, and goes through the double doors. I stare at the doors flapping back and forth. I'm in. I'm no longer an art student. I am a dishwasher <laughs> in a coffee shop. Nothing could sound better to me. <laughs> Restaurantware names burn a hole in my brain as I slide stacks of cups, dishes, and silverware into the Hobart. When I pull them out, the steam fogs up my glasses. I bust tables and I scrap, scrape half-eaten eggs, toast, potatoes, and fruit rinds into the garbage can under the counter. I put the dirty dishes in the bus trays. I hoist bus tray after bus tray of dishes into the kitchen, and I load them into the dishwasher. It's my first day on the job. When I take my shift break, I'm already tired, and it's only 11.30 a.m. I order a crab sandwich because when you're working, you can order anything from the menu, anything at all, and the cooks have to make it for you. <laughs> I seat myself at the counter just like a customer. I savor the real crab meat and melted cheese and tomatoes on white bread. It's grilled in butter. I, ne I could never afford the crab sandwich when I was just a customer, just a student. I know now, so suddenly, staring into the mirror behind the counter, that it is never going to be the same. I'll never be just a customer here, ever again. Even if I quit right here and now, I'm sitting on the other side of the counter now. My illusions are gone. The veil is lifted from my eyes. I take a breath and decide to get used to it. As insignificant as I feel now, I can tell there's something about this place. It feels like I'm in a movie, a very interesting and exciting movie, an independent feature in which I play a small but key role. I have to stay to find out how it's going to end. The steady stream of dirty dishes finally slows to a trickle after the lunch rush. The Imperial closes at 3, and as business dwindles after 2 o'clock, the waitresses do their side work. They try to perfect their technique of consolidating the ketchup bottles by balancing one Heinz bottle on top of the other, leaning one against the counter mirror. They garnish fruit, I mean, they slice fruit for garnishing plates tomorrow. They roll silverware into linen napkins and pile them into a pyramid for the next day. They refill sugar dispensers, jam jars, napkin boxes. They passive aggressively tidy up everything inside around the last customers, ask them repeatedly, can they get them anything else? Sweep around their feet, finally throw their bill down a gauntlet on the table. About 2.48, the cooks shamble out from the kitchen in their grease-stained aprons and look out the front window, peering down the block to see if anyone else is coming. They pray for people passing by not to come in the door. Everyone holds their breath. Five minutes till, two minutes till, one minute till. Then the heads swivel to watch the big hand hit the 12 on the clock on the back wall. Martha screeches, turn it around! Someone races to grab the open sign in the window and turn it over to read close. The radio's volume suddenly goes up to full blast, Mick Jagger. The cooks bend over the stove and start to vigorously scrub the blackened grill with a porous brick they call the fart block, that's what it smells like, until the grill shines. The waitresses, done with their side work, prepare to leave, one by one, freshening their lipstick in the cigarette machine mirror, brushing their hair, talking about their plans for the evening, which customers they're dating. I check my look, too. I'm a troll. <laughs> the, the cooks rip off their aprons, run their greasy fingers through their greasy hair, share a joint, wash their faces in the mop sink, and agree to meet up at the Piedmont Ranch. The payphone on the wall next to the kitchen rings. Martha answers, Oh, hi, Ruthie. No, honey, you just missed him. No, I didn't say. Okay, I will. 
Laszlo was meeting up with the boys at Piedmont, too. I watched them all leave. No one invites me, but I don't care. I just want to go home and put my feet up. My whole body aches. I take the last load of dishes out of the Hobart and stack them under the prep table with a feeling of triumph. I turn around to see enormous stockpots of charred bottoms sitting in the sink. That didn't tell you? It's Bernardo, the prep cook with the bad skin and Coke bottle glasses, who has come in to chop stuff for the next day. I can tell Bernardo needs to, to be knowing. <coughs> I can tell Bernardo needs to be knowing. Needs to pretend he's wise about something, anything more than me. Here, he gets out the steel wool and the Ajax for me. I study the scabs on the back of his head. Oh. After I'm done rubbing my fingers raw, <laughs> Bernardo shows me the mats the, co the cooks have stood on all day. Dishwasher's supposed to pull up mats to take them outside and hose them off. He says this casually, going back to chopping. He can say that because this used to be his job. For him, graduating the prep book is like a doctoral degree. <laughs> I study the greasy honeycomb pattern rubber and wonder, isn't it the filthiest thing I've ever seen? I lean down to lift a mat, finally. I have to stick my fingers through the holes to get a grip. Gunk wedges under my nails. I meet with resistance. It seems almost cemented to the floor. I pull some more and slowly making a suction-y sound it gives, leaving little hexagonal cakes of compressed food and grease underneath on the floor. I stare at it for a moment. All that crap underneath, you gotta sweep that up too. I see the perfectly pristine prep table and the cutting board and the vegetables and think about how pleasant it would be to just stand and slice the tactile satisfaction of knife through matter. I stagger slightly, holding this big, unwieldy thing by its length. It's like a big, horrible tongue trying to curl itself around me. Bernardo is back to me says, roll it up. I lay it back down and do just that. Then I stand and lift it. it it's heavy and I'm forced to waltz it in a close, greasy embrace across the restaurant, grimacing as I go to avoid dragging the slimy trail on the floor. Outside, the daylight is so intense I can hardly see. Squinting, I let go of the mat. It flops on the sidewalk. I stagger to the side of the building, where I blindly feel for the hose and faucet. When my eyes adjust, I can see that under a June sun, the Oakland sky is still that purpley blue, that blue I just can't get over. That blue that saturates the stucco pinks, greens, and yellows of all those tidy little Oakland houses that go on for miles and miles. A candy box city full of pastel creams. The sun mocks me. Look what you've missed, it says. By now soaking wet, I'm afraid to face the all-knowing Bernardo again. Sure enough, back inside, he says in a dry monotone, did I tell you I have to smop the floor out front? The floor is a black and red linoleum checkerboard. I wonder just how clean I'm supposed to get it. I decide not very. <laughs> I drag the mop around under the booths and tables, slurpy. Parts of the linoleum are worn away, down to the cement. While I rinse the mop in the sink, I wonder what torture Bernardo will have for me next. But he says, you can have your shift beer. <laughs> I pull a Dos Equis out of the fridge and sit alone at the counter. It slides icily down my throat. Nothing has ever tasted better. <laughs> I sit for a while in a wonderful beery haze. It's 5 p.m. I leave limp. I catch the 5158 to Berkeley and sit numbly, a pariah of grease on the bus as it inches up College Avenue. I get off at Derby Street and walk a half block to the big Ray house I share with a bunch of UC Berkeley students. As I put the key in the lock, I hear them down the hall in the kitchen in a heated debate about Sinn Féin or the Faroe Islands or something something utterly irrelevant to my new working-class life. <laughs> As I open the door, they pop their heads out like anxious parents and ask, how did it go? 
I burst into tears. Oh. And that's it. Oh. I was going to say, does anyone want to ask questions? Yes. You said uh, when you were showing us the slides, or when you started reading, and you said you took the job, and the actual wording was, I wanted to see how it ended. Did you have in mind that you would write the story? I knew from the first day I went to work there that it was a story that I was going to have to write someday. Yes. Anyone else? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just so staggered by the news. It's just washing over you. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Degrees. Degrees. What kind of a tipper are you? <laughs> I'm a pretty good tipper. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. How many years did you work there? I worked there from 1978 to 1982. And how long were you at dishwasher and when did you get promoted? That's in the book. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love the book, it was like a time machine, I was born in the East Bay, so it was, it was nice to oh, great. I wanted to ask a little bit, it's a little off topic, but about your National Anthem days. It seemed like such a boys club, like on the writing end, but the, the comics seemed like very lady-centric. And That's because of Sherry Flanagan. Okay, yeah, and uh, was it, were they, uh, were, were people nice to you, or was it a fun time, or anything? Uh, some of them were nice, some of them were not so nice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Aaron. What, happened, what happened to the restaurant? And it's still there. It's still it's still in operation. It's still really great food. Mom's Royal Cafe, 40th and Broadway, Oakland, California. Tell about your book reading. Oh, I had a yeah. My first reading was thank you, Gay. My first reading was at uh, at Mom's Royal Cafe, um, and it was really wonderful because there were so many people there that I had worked with back in the day, and it was like a, a reunion. It was it was mind blowing. And it was SRL. What? <laughs> so from the peanut gallery, do you go back every time you go up north? Oh, I always go back. Yeah. Actually, um, our son worked there as a dishwasher because he he also is graduating from California College of, Ar of the Arts, which used to be California College of Arts and Crafts, um, in next month, and he uh, had a brief stint there as a dishwasher. So he had, had a has a, an appreciation now. <laughs> yes. Can you talk about the process, how you did this, how long it took? Um, well, it took a really long time. Um, I started out doing it as a conventional, fictionalized memoir, not as a graphic novel. Um, I, I had, everyone who ever worked there has always agreed that it seemed like a movie. And for a long time I thought about doing it as a screenplay, but then I lived in Los Angeles long enough to know that, that even if I wrote a screenplay, the chances of it getting actually produced were slim, and then the chances of it getting produced faithfully were even slimmer. So I thought, why don't I just write it as a, as a uh, you know, fictionalized memoir? And I say a fictionalized memoir because um, I, I never could have included everyone who worked there. There's so many crazy crackpot people who work there that I had to kind of condense a lot of characters, like five fry cooks became three fry cooks, and you know, 20 waitresses be became 
four waitresses, and you just couldn't, you know, it was just too unwieldy to try to do it as, as fact rather than fiction. Um, so I, I did it, and, and my agent couldn't sell it, and some editor said, well, I really like this, but she considered doing it as a graphic novel, and I, I just got, just, I just blew my stack. nervous. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to do it as a graphic novel. I'd do it as a graphic novel. How dare she? And, but the reason that I had stopped myself from doing this graphic novel was because I couldn't imagine doing that much drawing. It just seemed inconceivable, like just a totally inconceivable amount of work to do it. And finally, I had to admit to myself, well, I, you know, I am a cartoonist. So I do. Maybe I should think about that. And, and I actually spoke to Art Spiegelman, who's a friend of ours, and, and he said, well, then you should just do it. And you know, when Art Spiegelman tells you you should just do it, I guess you just have to do it. <laughs> and then that took years because we were raising our kids and I had all these distractions in my way and I couldn't work on it all the time. And um, then Drone and Quarterly uh, agreed to publish it and then I finally started getting rolling on it. So it's been about 15 years of from starting to think about well, from starting to actually write it. I've been thinking about it since the day I went to work at it, obviously, but about 15 years altogether. Wow. Yes? How do you, how do you, what do you work with now towards your media desk? Uh, I'm sorry, what do I? The media that you work in, are you still paper? And yes, I don't, I don't work on computers, I just don't, I just can't. So it's actually, for drawing quarterly, they asked me to separate the tone from the line work, so that lovely green shade that you see, which is Viridian, by the way, <laughs> um, is first I have to do the line work on Bristol board, and then I have to take a piece of watercolor paper and put it on top of the line work on a light box and work over that too, because it it prints better to have the line, the tone and the line separated, but it's it's difficult and laborious and a big pain in the ass. And I guess you know it turned out pretty good. So yes, Lynn. Well, what I, oh, I'm going to cry. <laughs> this is Lynn Stewart, who was Miss Yvonne on Pee Wee's Playhouse. Lynn and I wrote an episode of Pee Wee's Playhouse together called Reborella, and which ruined me for writing for television forever because what they, what Paul did with our script was he, he took our script and he shot it. <laughs> and I thought, great, that's a huge ride, and then they shoot it. That's great. <laughs> You, you guys know. <laughs> Go ahead. Well, what I love, because um, Muffy and I both were Bob's big boy waitresses, is that you totally captured, you know, I love the detail with the condiments and cleaning and, and putting the napkins in, and there's no tiredness like a waitress at the end of her shift. I mean, unless it's caregiving. I mean, there's just a certain yeah. kind of tiredness that that uh, that you get from doing that physical energy along with trying to be nice to everybody and keep everything straight and just that you totally capture that. Well, I mean, everybody's going to love it, but ex-waitresses are really <laughs> Well, trust me, if I could have worked in the, that bit that you told me about your hairpiece falling into the ice cream freezer. <laughs> My cascade. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, I, I didn't want to stay a waitress for the rest of my life. I wanted to go to New York and be a cartoonist and an illustrator. And um, How did you meet Wayne? <laughs> 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 I 
I'm at Wayne in New York at uh, a hole in the wall art gallery on the Lower East Side where he was performing a stunning and, and seminal piece of, of puppet genius. <laughs> <laughs> and he came out from behind his cardboard stage and I said, that's the man for me. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's fair. I just want to hear it again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. What is your work day like? On a day that you're working, like how do you do? You work at night? Do you work in the day? Do you work in long stretches? Do you drink a lot of coffee? Ideally, I get up in the morning and I don't have any distractions. I, I have breakfast and I go to my desk and I work and I work till lunchtime and then I eat and then I go back to the drawing board and I work some more. And in between all this, while I'm drawing, I also dick around on Facebook like nobody's business. But then I always like go back to the drawing. So it's it's sort of this ADD thing that this balance that that works well. So and so on days like that, I get lots done. And there's not like where do you work? Like, do you work in, in office on a table? Um, yeah, in, on a, at a desk with a chair, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was working in this this. This like this cubby hole underneath our um, underneath our kitchen in the basement until our son left home and then I took over his room. <laughs> so that's good. But you know, I'm I'm a firm believer in if you if you really want to get the work done, you will find a way to do it anywhere. I've worked in all kinds of places. In fact, uh, in 2012, I I, t I did my own like little self-residency. I took the month of August. I went, I actually I went on Facebook and I asked people if they had like a, a place anywhere that I could go and get away just to get work done to where I'd be undistracted and I got offers from everywhere from Montana to Manhattan. Of course I'll take Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, and um, one of my friends offered me her uh, a um, an apartment in Long Island City that was a beautiful apartment um, but I was working with the light box and uh, the, the apartment was in, in real estate parlance, flooded with light. <laughs> and the only place I could go to get a, a room that was completely dark was to sit on the floor in the bathroom with the light box. So that's what I did. So I will work anyway. <laughs> Are we done? Any more? Yeah. Um, you said that it took you a really long time to get this story up. Do you feel like there's a lot over that period of time of the stories that you lost and how did you fill in the gaps? I guess I'm asking if there's somebody who has a story to tell that it's taken them a long time to tell, how would you encourage them to go ahead even if they're memories? Just take, take a lot of notes and, and you know keep, keep notes and keep them organized somewhere so that you can go back and refer to them. One of the other things was that the, the character in the, in the book whose name is Laszlo, whose name in real life was his actual nom de plume was Nestor Marzipan, um, he, after I left the restaurant, he and I corresponded for years after I moved to New York, and I had these letters from him that were completely invaluable to me because they, his voice was so distinctive and his writing style was so wonderful and his expressions were so great, and I was able to call upon all those. Plus, I left the restaurant and he kept sending me all the gossip. So some of the incidents that happened in this, in this book are things that actually happened after I left but I was able to pull from them and use them in the book. So that was, uh, that was like a gold mine. 
Oh, sorry. Why didn't they give you a swivel chair, actually? No. Um, so you've had many chapters. We've all had many chapters. You chose this one to write about. Was it about your particular age, you think? Was it about the people you encountered, the richness of the place? Why this time that's important? Well, the 70s were really a different time and, and a strange decade and, and very dark. And what I, I, I like to describe it as navigating a moral swamp. <laughs> because that's what it felt like because they were you know like the 60s had come along the hippies had thrown out all the rules and we were supposed to just figure it out from there and then like slowly you're just going oh so there were rules for a reason <laughs> and you know all this, sh all this shit was happening at first there's like there's there's the, the Manson murders and there's Watergate and there's Vietnam and there's Patty Hearst and there's Jonestown and the the oil crisis and just all this stuff, this shit's just raining down and it's getting more and more cynical and weird and dark and everything, you know, the whole hippie thing just doesn't make sense anymore and it just seems like a bunch of crap. And, and everyone was doing their best trying to figure out what that was all about. And, and it's, and, you know, people like to, to be nostalgic about the 70s and they think like, oh, disco was, must have been so much fun. And what young people don't understand was that the people who were into disco then were the, the, the douchebags of their head. <laughs> and and they were just like really, really like middle class and bourgeois and boring at best. And at worst, they were like sleazy creeps who were like, you know, like if you were a woman and you went by yourself to a disco, it was like being, you know, walking into a, a, a lion's den. It's like just all these people going, like, <laughs> Does that answer your question? It does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, what did Lulu and Woodrow? Well, they surprisingly liked it. <laughs> She's talking about our kids. Uh, have they come before? I don't think they knew all that much about it. I don't think they expected to see pictures of their mother having sex. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to do it tastefully. <laughs> I'm not crumb, you know. <laughs> yeah. You throw a lot of stuff away that you've written or drawn, and how do you practice both? Do you write, just write the thing itself? Well, the, the manuscript was there, as I said. It was initially, it was a, it was a conventional memoir, and so when I went to map it out uh, visually, I just kind of use that as a roadmap. And so it's very faithful to the original manuscript. There's just a lot of stuff, like descriptions of people and places that doesn't get done because you've got to show that instead of, of you know, writing it down. The ratio of, like when I write, I throw away about 99. Oh, well, during the writing process of, of the, the memoir itself, I, I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote, yeah. You've got to kill those darlings. Like, just slice it down. <laughs> yeah. So when you were working at Mama's, were you keeping a cartoon journal? No. I, I mean, I was I was drawing on you know on not while I was working. I mean, you can't waitress and drawing. Right, right. I was I was keeping sketchbooks um, on a regular basis, but not specifically about the restaurant because it was just. You know, it's like so much inside the experience, it was hard to fathom 
what the story was. You're just kind of living it day by day and hoping you were going to figure it out later. And then I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who were some of the uh, modern graphic novelists that you liked um, Well, I like Vanessa Davis here <laughs> and um, Esther Pearl Watson in the back there. And I like um, Martin Satrapi and, of course, Alison Bechtel and Dan Klaus and Charles Burns and lots of them. Uh, Miriam Caton. Um, there's there's a lot. David B. Um, um, who's, who's, who did uh, Jerusalem? And, um, who? No, not just that, there are other, you know, the, uh, but, yeah, young man. P. DeLeal. Yeah, so well, there's lots of them. Yes, Vanessa. Did you have any other experiences like this one where you went into it and immediately thought of, knew that it was a story? Just the hamster show. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did a, a web comic about a hamster show that Vanessa and Trevor and I went to with our, my daughter. And in, in Griffith Park, it's on my little blog site, which is sneepon.typepet.com. And we, Vanessa had said, Let's, there's a hamster show in Griffith Park. Let's go. I was like, yes. <laughs> Right? And I imagined like this, you know, this enormous, <laughs> enormous cavernous room filled with like, hundreds and hundreds of hamster cages and people milling, hamster enthusiasts milling about. And, and we drove to the park and we're like, where is it? Where is it? And like, well, finally, like across this picnic area, we saw this card table. <laughs> The rest of it. It was, it, was a, it was an existential crisis. <laughs> but yeah, that was it. I mean, I've done lots of cartoons like for the LA Times about different things that were funny and compelling, but that was such a bizarre experience. I was just sort of. It was emotional. <laughs> you wouldn't think it would be. Yeah, but. One of my favorite customers, Glenn Lambert, right there. Oh, great. Right. Well, you know, oh, you should have been in Oakland last week. <laughs> well, You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.